Thank you for joining us for Common Ground in Perspective, a series of short plays and conversations powered by the Huntington in partnership with Facing History and Ourselves. This series is a companion podcast to the Huntington's upcoming production of Common Ground Revisited, written by Kirsten Greenwich and directed by Amelia Bensusen. Common Ground Revisited is an adaptation of Anthony Lucas's 1986 book. This podcast series puts short plays in dialogue with local leaders and scholars to contextualize the history surrounding busing, school desegregation, education, and opportunity in the city of Boston. In crafting these conversations, the Huntington has partnered with Brookline organization Facing History and Ourselves. How can looking at painful history of our city inform our collective effort in building a stronger future? How can we engage with history to help us combat discrimination today? Following the audio play, we'll bring you a panel moderated by scholar and Facing History affiliated teacher Nima Avashia, featuring Gary Armstrong and Philip Martin. First, we hear from Melia and Kirsten. This is director Melia Bensusen. Kirsten and I began the stage adaptation of Common Ground almost 10 years ago. In the stage play, we hope to build on, expand, and reframe Tony Lucas's landmark work. With this podcast, our aim is to share some aspects of this project with audiences, and to also invite you to join us with your point of view, because this is our city's collective story, and we want to hear and reflect on the many perspectives that coexist around this history. And this is Kirsten Greenwich. What you will hear in this podcast is not an excerpt of the play that will be on stage next summer. In this series, we wanted to do two things. One, discuss some of the public figures and events that we are choosing not to center in the stage play. Two, we wanted to foreground that this project is designed for conversation. And now, episode two, the editor. there was a Boston institution caught in between, it was the Boston Globe. Please, get out of here with that in between. Oldest and largest. Oldest and largest newspaper caught trying to appear like it's speaking to each neighborhood. When each neighborhood's been pushed past the point of talking. Yep, yep, each neighborhood wants to shout. At the top of its lungs. What are you going to lead your stories with when one sentence... One above the fold paragraph could set the city off. 27 Pulitzer Prizes. The Globe must know how to write some type of story. And one of those prizes was for busing in particular. Meritorious public service for its massive and balanced coverage of the Boston school desegregation crisis. And what's their definition of balanced? If in-between is going to erase voices, it's no good for a newspaper. How many times have any one of us read The Globe and its stories on Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, and thought, really? 
No wonder people from the suburbs only see the inside of Fenway and Boston Garden. I'm not talking 2021. I'm talking the 90s, 80s. Rock in a hard place. White, rock, black, hard place? Because it is. It is the city's oldest and largest for decades. Its credo has been to dwell on the virtues of men and institutions rather than upon their faults. To help build up rather than to join in the tearing down. Like who at the Globe knows this credo? To help men, women, and children get some of the sunshine of life. To be better and happier because of the Globe. Hold up. To always treat a person fairly in the Globe. So you may meet that person again and look them straight in the eye. It's there. On a plaque in the lobby. Ah, the globe. Handing everyone the sunshine of life. Lofty. Goals. In the 70s, you had everyone who made up the globe looking at that plaque. Writing away, looking at that plaque, writing away. But you had this entire city looking in to everyone who made up the globe and yelling, What about us? What about me? The black parents, the white parents, the school committee, the teachers, the lawmakers. The children. (laughs) Children don't buy newspapers. So their voice? Who can hear it? Right. So, so like, what was the globe doing in 1974, 1975? How was the globe behaving? You got this plaque on the wall shouting out what a free and independent and ethical news source should be. But inside the globe... In 74, 75, you got all-white reporters shining an all-white light on a situation that we all know was more than one color. More than two colors? It's mainstream media, and it's 1975, so there are no other colors to busing. Unless you go digging. Oh, the Globe did some digging. In August 1974, when the Globe's responsibility in the fall of 1974 was clear to its editor. Nine years after the Massachusetts General Court legislated the Racial Imbalance Act. Get it together, Boston. Nine years of that and our schools were still a hot mess? And, um, it's Massachusetts. History wants us to believe the Boston School Committee was the only one showing its values... But it's the Massachusetts Racial Imbalance Act, not the city is the only one with history act. Suburbs, do you hear your doorbell ringing? August 1974, the Globe's editor, Tom Winship, issues a memo to all hands containing 13 guidelines for busing coverage. Taken one by one, most were journalistic platitudes, but some reflected an unusual anxiety given that the globe was the oldest and largest. We print an accurate record of what our reportings find. If there is violence, we say so. We do not suppress news because it does not fit our views of what we hope happens. Can someone in here post this for the interwebs today? Like, hashtag, keep journalism alive? Can I just remind everyone the globe was not the only paper in this town? Bay State Banner, anyone? Bussing looks a lot different from inside those pages. Winship's issue to the Globe staff went on. Our news columns must be believed. 
not just by those who agree with our editorial policy, but by those who disagree. Our aim is to convince all that the globe is committed to the goal of seeking out the truth. There's that tricky word again. Not so tricky. A few days later, when the assignments for the opening day of school were handed out, the globe's plan to cover busing came to light. A small army of reporters, 60 in all, was to be deployed across the city. One reporter called it when he said, You almost got the feeling that by covering every base, we were covering our own asses. So the globe is thorough. I guess that's a good thing. Well... The Globe's opening day coverage was massive. But? But. Maybe because it was so massive, the lens showing how the day really went and what it meant? Stop blurry. Yes, ma'am. Although angry crowds had stoned black children in South Boston. Mm-hmm. Injuring nine and leading Mayor White to prohibit gatherings of three or more persons. Can he do that? Most of the coverage that day reported harmonious um, relationships. So the lead story was... Minimum of confusion and disruption throughout the city. South Boston's incident got third paragraph. Headline for the Globe, complete with black and white students bathed in ethereal light, was... A fine beginning. Which matched the tack taken by most local television and radio stations. But the national media? Focus on the disruptions. You had to get to the second paragraph in the New York Times to read about any calm. So who's covering up what? Longtime editor Bob Phelps quipped to the Times' John Kiffner over drinks that night. You covered the first day like a police reporter. The real story was that 79 out of 80 schools were completely peaceful. To which Kiffner replied... If 3,000 jets take off on a given day and all but one lands safely, you don't write 2,999 airliners arrive at destinations. You write jet crash kills 200. Exactly. Get it together, Boston. Exactly. In between. With busing, the Boston Globe was sitting in the crosshairs. Do you make the story about airliners or people? Whatever you decide is going to raise a lot of fists in the air. Oh, yeah. There's threats. There's anti-globe graffiti. There's Charlestown's Restore Our Alienated Rights, calling Tom Winship's globe maggots of the media. There's shootings at the newspaper office. Airliners arrive at destinations and Crash Kills 200 are both true. So you find a way to lead with both. To tell the whole story. Or... You admit you've got a point of view, a bias, that does not, cannot treat everybody the same. Our sun is actually not able to shine on everyone equally. Yes, and any organization is what it aspires to be and what it actually is. How else do you get thousands of people saying, take this cubicle and shove it come pandemic time when they'd had enough? The Globe's point of view can't be objective, can't live up to its own polished wall plaque if all its windows face the same way. In 1974, its staff is basically white, basically men, and basically elite. Harvard, old boys clubs, it's not in the crosshairs, it's holding the weapon. 
and how many of them even lived in this city. Editor Tom Winship lived out in Lincoln. By 1974, the handful of Globe reporters still living in Boston had long since removed their children from Boston public schools. By September of 1974, most of the working class reporters are out the door. And they took the Globe's working class readers with them. Given the paper's progressive positions on birth control, abortion, gay rights, pornography, by the fall, the Globe's few black reporters were demanding more writers of color more access to leadership positions. Is this 1974 or 2000 now? Hmm. All in all, yes. Tom Winship, the editor who gave us the globe we recognize today, is, by the time busing rolls around, in between. Because that's the job. In between gives all the sides. Anything less is something else, but it's not journalism. Every word is a choice. Yes. Right. 2,999 airliners, or 200 human beings and all their families, who will never be the same. Rock. Hard place. No. I don't think so. Human beings. That's what you choose. Amen. Truth is. Truth is? The truth shouldn't be this complicated. How do we move forward if it's this complicated? The truth should be simple. It can have layers, it can have edges, but it should be simple. It can't. It has too many sides. My name is Nima Avashia, and I have been a history and civics teacher in the Boston Public Schools since 2003. During that time, I've done a lot of learning with my students about the history of school desegregation in Boston. Today, I'm excited to be in conversation with two of Boston's most storied journalists, Gary Armstrong and Philip Martin, about their experiences with living and working in Boston during the desegregation era. Philip and Gary, thank you so much for being here with us today. I wondered if we could start by having you each locate yourself in relation to the history of desegregation in Boston. Where were you at the time? What were you doing? What were you seeing, hearing, and thinking about in the late 60s and early 70s in this city? Okay, I guess being the older person here, I'll start. I was three or four years into my tenure at Channel 7 in Boston when the uh, busing story uh, became uh, very, very prominent. Prior to that, I had worked in the late 60s at the ABC network, where I got a lot of my grounding participating in some of the big, big international stories. So I, I, I was used to controversy. So I was 72, 73. I was, golly, I was in my early 30s, uh, three or four years at Channel 7. I was crying for, for this stuff. I had seen other vestiges of it when I covered the Civil Rights March in the late 60s. I was one of just a handful of reporters of color working in Boston at that point. I don't remember who else was working at Channel 7 as a minority. Channel 4 had a few. 
Channel 5 had a couple, but we were very, very few in those days. So we brought that dimension to the story also. Gary, you were perhaps the first uh, Black reporter I met in Boston. I'm originally from Detroit, and I arrived in Boston not long after high school, first year of college in uh, 1975, and came as a result, as I've written for the Boston Globe, as a result of a call, basically, from an organization called the Committee Against Racism, uh, organization that was working on a lot of campuses. I was one of those who responded, picked up a flyer, Someone handed it to me in a classroom and said, come to Boston for the summer. I was pretty depressed in Detroit at that point. <laughs> was looking at what was happening in Boston, was astounded at the level of racism in a place that I had always considered exotic, not just far away, but almost exotic. Uh, New England, the notion of going to New England was exciting to me. The notion of going out there to deal with the pictures of people being assaulted in South Boston, particularly the picture of a Haitian man being chased through the streets of South Boston and beaten to the inch of his life by a mob. It was also a, uh, a white man who apparently inter intervened and saved that Haitian man as he uh, was trying to get away from hundreds of people in South Boston. That picture was on the front page of the Detroit Free Press. I saw that picture. I heard the call to come to Boston that summer. 1975. What I would do in Boston, I wasn't sure. A young person, didn't have a profession at that point. I was a student. But I came out because they said you can help organize against racism. I love the notion of against racism. And what that meant essentially was passing out flyers, teaching at the Highland Park Free School in Roxbury to a multiracial group of students five, six, seven years old. It was fairly uh, exciting. And then it escalated over the summer where we ended up going to people's homes trying to protect them from firebombs. We went to a home in uh, Hyde Park to basically protect a Black woman who had moved in and shortly afterwards was being besieged. Uh, her home was uh, firebombed. There were firebombings in Dorchester. And then the office that we occupied, the Committee Against Racism, was firebombed. And the folks who were there that summer came from across the United States. Some of them called themselves socialists. A couple of people saw themselves as very conservative, but anti-racist. You even had people who regarded themselves as anarchists and communists. And by the end of the summer, they ended up on Carson Beach. Um, that was sort of the culmination of the summer, where weeks earlier, Black Bible salesmen were attacked in South Boston, they didn't have a clue. They had arrived in Boston, figured they'd go to the beach as though they were in Maryland or Sarasota or any number of places where they might have been safe. And they were set upon in South Boston. And that really ticked people off. And so a large number of people marched to the beach, but we were outnumbered by an even larger group of people who were proud to call themselves racist and divided by a police line police on horseback, on the sand, police in the water, in speedboats. And at the end of the summer, I again, I said, I'm out of here. I was also working in the docks, the Detroit Free Press, and was happy to get back to the docks and uh, you know, deliver newspapers to, um, to folks in the Detroit metropolitan area. Philip, I know you asked me uh, whether or not I was accosted at Carson Beach, and uh, I don't believe I was. I remember 
being the target of verbal assaults and being called all kinds of names. And you're used to that sort of thing. First of all, as a member of the media, you're always the target of people who don't like your work or don't like you and assume that you're, you're not telling the truth. I, I dodged things that were thrown in our direction, but I don't recall being the center of, of attention. My face by that time was familiar, of course. And there were some people who assumed because uh, I was a, a man of color that my sympathies would be with the black community and that I wouldn't tell it as it is or as it was. I really tried to see the story from all perspectives. And that made things more complicated. The more you went after detail, the more you tried to see what was going on behind that first layer of people demonstrating, the more difficult it became, especially if you only had a minute and a half or two minutes on TV to tell your story. I really focused on trying to get at the meat of the story. So in a sense, I was covering something special, but I was doing what a reporter is supposed to do. You hear the people yelling, you see them throwing things. A lot of that was, and I hate saying this, but a lot of that was just a street theater. And people see cameras and they act really, really in crazy manners that they wouldn't act if the cameras were not on. You could roll up to the scene without taking out the TV camera and people would be standing around. Once the cameras came out, people got very vociferous. They became very animated. They went from being, let's say, polite and affable to being nasty and chanting all of those nasty things for the camera. Uh, how much of it was real? How much of it was theater? I, I'm not quite sure. But, Philip, you remember our mandate from the people we worked for, the management people, they wanted to hear all the sound and fury. They didn't particularly care what people were saying. They wanted to see that violence because they felt uh, that was the kind of thing that viewers wanted to see. I remember specifically seeing you on the beach at Carson Beach. I saw this black reporter covering this situation, and I was worried about you because I saw rocks flying. What I saw were rocks flying toward the side that we were standing on. You, of course, as a journalist, you were probably literally standing in the middle. And one of those rocks hit a, a cop on horseback. And that became a point of extraordinary tension because the horse reared, came into our area, and then all the rocks started flying toward those of us who are on this side of the beach. And interestingly, and I think part of the story the media got wrong, it wasn't black and white per se, because there were white people on an anti-racist side as well. In subsequent tellings of this story, it became a black-white situation where it wasn't. It was far more complex than that. And I think what one of the other things about this story that folks tended to get wrong, there was greater complexity uh, than uh, just uh, rocks flying and people in fistfights on that beach. Ironically, many years later, I got to know two of the people who were on the other side of the line where I was. I ended up playing basketball with one of them in South Boston in the early 80s, and we became friends. And he did not uh, try to make excuses for what he did that day, but he did examine it and recognized it as acts of racism. But the, again, the complexity is that uh, each of these folks had a story to tell, but the story that most people in the country were hearing was that it was a story about busing 
it was really a story about disaggregation and a, and a larger story about societal uh, divisions. And either you figure out a way to heal those divisions or you don't. Busing may not have been the antidote that most people would have prescribed. It was that which Judge Garrity prescribed, but it wasn't what many people prescribed. And it certainly wasn't what people in South Boston were into. As a reporter, you're, you're caught up in the moment. You're focused on what's going on, which sort of blinds you. When people think that reporters, in, in many cases, are so brave, it, it's simply that you are aware of what's going on, but you're focused on getting the story. You're focused on who's saying what, and so you become oblivious to whatever the physical dangers are. Uh, so I, you mentioned the horses, and I, I that took me back in time, and I remember the danger of them, but I have to make fun of myself. I was aware of the horses and, and the danger they presented. But I, if you remember, Phil, Philip, I used to dress to the tees. That's right. <laughs> I looked down at my shoes, and I was more concerned about stepping into the horse manure than anything else. I mean, call it my priorities. But at the core of all the levels of the issues you're talking about, Philip, was education. And that's the thing that gradually evolved into the center of my mind that black families and white families and Hispanic families, they were all complaining about the quality or lack of quality education in their schools. They wanted better textbooks. The textbooks were in horrible condition and they were so outdated. And I heard the same stories, almost verbatim in all the different communities. So obviously, if you're a reporter, when you're putting that story together, you're just repeating what people have told you that day. And if you do that accurately, it's, it's going to be balanced. Everyone is saying the same thing. So beyond the protest, beyond the racism, beyond the screaming, beyond the racist music, which was played very often, there was that reaching out and saying, we want better education. Because through education, our children can have a better future. And Philip, you also opened up uh, another a memory bank for me. I remember 20 or 25 years after 1975, I was in South Boston covering perhaps a parade and a young man came up to me, he had a child on his shoulder and the young man came over and said, hey, let's say the kid's name was Joey. Hey, Joey, this is Mr. Armstrong. He was one of the nice reporters. We used to throw things at him, and I cursed him, and I called him bad names. But he was a nice man, Joey. And Mr. Armstrong, the father, said to me, I'm so sorry we behaved the way we did, but it was all for naught. The education was still bad. And after it was all over, I couldn't go on to pursue the dreams I had wanted to pursue. So my childhood, my adolescence, my high school years were wasted. All of that sound and fury left me with the same problems my dad had. I'm hoping, the young man told me, I'm hoping to do things better for my son. And I just wanted to tell you that all these years later. That's so, an that's incredible have, story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there you, you know, a, a loss of innocence is the cheap emotional way out of this, but it was a loss of innocence for so many people. Now, as people who were on the front lines, you could see this. And when we began to tell these stories, the, the really emotional stories and the similarity in all neighborhoods of what they wanted, quality education, that began to get responses 
from the community saying, you're onto it. This is what we need. This is what we were, this is what we're yelling about. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're black or white. And I just repeated that in my reports. And I remember being told, you're making your story too complex. They're going too long. Uh, you're starting to bore the viewers. Uh, they, they can't handle all of these different issues. Stay with the violence. The viewers like this. They can understand that. But I would, I would say this, Gary. It wasn't just a question in Boston about schools and education. It centered on that. That was the provenance for much of the violence and the protest, the shouting and the here we go, South, the here we go, chanting, so on and so forth. But I think what this did was it seeped into the city's very core. And this was ostensibly about busing and, uh, and about desegregation. But what it was also about was impeding progress. There was concern as there is concern now. We can relate, relate this to the moment. There was concern among many white people, particularly white politicians, about uh, the displacement, if you will. You hear about this so-called replacement theory coming out of France. And there was concern uh, whether on a local level that white people would be displaced and replaced in South Boston, or they would be replaced in a broader sense in society. And so this seeped into the political core of Boston. It was the concern about the possibility of a black mayor. We saw that with Mel King and, and Ray Flynn in 84. A black city council. So therefore, you saw the forces uh, that used desegregation and busing to ensconce themselves in power, like Louis de Hicks, city council absolutely, person. Absolutely. And, and Jim Kelly, a city council person, who was also uh, part of the South Boston Marshals, which was a vigilante organization that basically worked with gangsters in South Boston to keep, if you will, people in their place. And one of the best elucidations of this occurred with Michael Patrick McDonald's book, All Souls. Um, I've gotten to know Michael Patrick McDonald very well. I have uh, gone back to South Boston with him several times to Old Colony, his old neighborhood, where he talked about while all of this was going on and while the rocks were flying and while we were focused on the yellow school buses and so on and so forth, his community was being flooded with drugs, <laughs> with heroin and other opiates by Whitey Bulger, who at the same time was telling people in his community that I exist here in order to keep the blacks out. If you basically pay attention to me, pay attention to what I'm saying and obey my rules, then I will make sure that black people do not come into this neighborhood. He was basically using this in order to, as politicians were, to accentuate their own power, to expand their power, and using their racism basically as a way of oppressing their own people. I found that to be um, not ironic. I, it's, I found it to be purposeful. And you can relate that to what's happening today, <laughs> where people like Donald Trump uh, and others basically tell people what they want to hear in terms of, of uh, you don't want to be replaced, uh, you don't want those people coming across the border, you don't want those people moving into your neighborhood. I feel like you guys have done such an amazing job of establishing the context, right, in which all of this was happening. When you think about coverage of that context, media coverage of that context, and in particular, the Globe's coverage of that context, this is asking you to go back in your memory a little bit, but I wonder what you feel like was the role of the Globe in either being a mirror, right? It could be a mirror and it could reflect it back. It could obscure parts of the story. 
it could highlight parts of the story. What role did the globe play in the city when it came to the narrative around what mattered and what didn't matter and what stories we were telling and what stories we were leaving out? My take on this is the globe was seen as, quote unquote, the Bible in many, many newsrooms. Now, people think that reporters came in and they had a suitcase full of news stories. Well, the truth is, as reporters, you read all the newspapers and magazines that were available to you topped by the globe. And when we were deciding what stories would be covered, um, you'd open up the globe and we would have underlined various stories that needed to be, to, to, needed to be uh, pursued. In other words, we were following the globe to do our stories. It was rare that you had stories originated by TV reporters because that required so much time, so much background work uh, in a medium that said, turn the story around in 15 or 20 minutes and come back with the whole story. That's impossible. But um, the other thing that Philip, you touched on was um, the, the whitey bulges and the other community leaders and political leaders. The thing that I, I must say, you could, I couldn't say this on television because it was, it was personal, subjective. But what anchored me was the way community leaders used their people to spew their own self-serving political and social venom. And they used that as, as the so-called truth. In, in the white community, they always inferred that if you allow black students to attend predominantly white schools, um, no one ever said this directly, but young ladies should watch out for those black male students coming in because you know what will happen. And, and Philip, when you touched on the rise of drugs in Southie and in, in Charlestown and other places, community leads were saying black students come in, they'll bring drugs in, as well as the sense of uh, a predatory danger to uh, women from black males coming into the white community. If you allow one in, <laughs> if you allow one in, others will come in and your community will just be swept away. Now, this was all false. And the people I talked to off camera in the white community said, well, you know, you have to say these things to get their attention, Gary. And we know that you'll cover this fairly. So all you did was repeat what they said, but you had to understand how two-faced many of the community leaders and many of the political leaders were. If you didn't understand the duplicity coming from these people, uh, you shouldn't have been out there with a notebook or a microphone because you were missing what really was being played as the big story. The duplicity is a good, a good term. Gary, you're right in terms of how it, uh, the television reporters essentially necessarily for a lot of reasons, but mainly resources, uh, echoed a lot of what was um, in the Globe or, in, or interpreted uh, what was in the Globe. And the same thing was true to some degree with radio, um, but not for the radio station I uh, interned for at that time, which was WBCN. <laughs> and if you remember Danny Schechter, uh, he was a pretty enterprising reporter. Porter. And a uh, year after I had gone back to Detroit, I came back to Boston and started working as an intern uh, at WBCN. And one of the first stories I did was go back to um, Carson Beach and talk to people there to see how folks were feeling a year later and so on and so forth. And I mentioned this because at the Globe, 
I think the globe started later embracing this thing we called it called complexity. I'm not sure how well they did during the busing years. Uh, you had brave individuals and some brave editors covering a story. And they were picketed, if you remember, by members of the South Boston community. And there were death threats against Globe reporters uh, and Globe editors. And there was an effort, if you will, to cover this, this really complex story uh, and the violence that, uh, that accompanied uh, that, that story. But there were also, at various times, I think, levels of appeasement of not so much the most vociferous racist within, you know, like uh, the community, but to appease some level of community, if you will, a community of consensus, to create a, a peace, to be at peace with the, the community right next door. The Boston Global Course at this time was uh, uh, on the edge of South Boston. And so folks came by regularly in cars, shouting at reporters, South Boston marshals threatened uh, reporters and so on and so forth. So there was a real effort to appease the community. You had very few black reporters there uh, at the time. Um, and they were basically put into a difficult position of trying to cover this as well. And, and a few white reporters who actually sympathized with what was happening in, in Southie. Uh, let's face it. And when I think about it in retrospect, I think the Globe did a fairly decent job, but could have done a much better job, if, if you will, if they felt... Um, protected, <laughs> which they weren't, if they had more people of color covering these stories, and if they were not bullied by the sense of creating consensus uh, or uh, peace, if you will, with this sentiment that was coming out of South Boston, Charlestown, uh, East Boston, so on and so forth. And th that appeasement quite often meant um, covering this both-sidism type of uh, formula. Uh, quite often, it wasn't a question of both sides. It was a question, you know, of one side throwing rocks and another side trying to get the hell out of there. Uh, it, it reminded me of, of trying to cover, if you will, the situation in, um, in Virginia, uh, uh, the notion of both sides. Uh, well, it wasn't a question of both sides. In Virginia, you know, the Jews will not replace us demonstrators. It's not the same as those who were fighting against those forces in Virginia in 2018. It's also, it, it, I should say, it also was a generational thing. You were among the younger reporters at that time. I was slightly older. That's right. And then there were reporters who were older than both of us who had been around since the 50s. And they had their own way of thinking. And I remember uh, them saying to me, well, you don't want to make too many waves. I'm talking about older white reporters. And the inference was, you don't want to make any waves. You go out there. We called uh, the interviews we did on the street, uh, MOS's men on the street, or people on the street, if you want to be politically correct, I, I guess, or, or heads or whatever. And so they would say to me, you need to get five or six heads to fill out your, your package, and that'll satisfy management. It doesn't matter what they say, just as long, as long as they're animated or whatever. I was told, be careful not to make so-and-so angry because you won't be able to go back and get other stories. And that was the worst thing in the world anyone could have said to me because I've always had, and my family teases me about it, but I've always had a problem with authority. Dating back to, yes, when I was a Marine recruit, and drill instructors yelled at me, and I just laughed in their faces. That, uh, you know, I had this 
absurd attitude towards people who tried to intimidate me, which leads me to the day that I was confronted by an angry mob white protester. We were wrapping up a story, I believe it was in South Boston, and um, we were still shooting film because my concern was uh, wrap up the story quickly because you had to get the film back to be processed before you could get your hands on it to edit it and, and write to it. So there I am wrapping up the story and the mob was approaching us. You could hear them screaming uh, racial epithets towards us and towards me and, and directly. And my crew, I noticed out of the corner of my eye, my crew was getting nervous. And I, part of me understood that there was danger there. But I have to tell you, my main concern was getting the film back. So all of us of them are aware of how do we get out of here to get this darn film back? Uh, anxiety was the furthest thing from my mind. So I was thinking, how the heck do I get out of here? So you could hear them saying the N-word, chanting it louder and louder. And I, I knew cans and bottles were bouncing off of me. And from somewhere in the back of my head, I think, I think my brain was still working pretty well back then. I held up my hands for them to quiet down. And by golly, they, they backed off a little bit. And I know this sounds like Mel Brooks, but this was very <laughs> honest. Out of my mouth came, no, I'm not an N. You, you, you've got it wrong. I'm a Samoan. I'm okay. I'm a Samoan. I'm not an N, okay? What? They shut up. They believed me. They were so they were so stupid. They believed that I was a Samoan. And you could hear them say, "Oh, he's okay." He's a Samoan. <laughs> so they backed <laughs> off. And the, the end of the story was, I got my film back, and there were people to this day who think I'm a Samoan. <laughs> so you know, you look for a little bit of humor in the middle of chaos. And you know, the people in the newsroom just looked at me and they said, "You're both." Gary Armstrong doesn't play with a fullback anyway. And that's what got him through so much danger. In addition to being a reporter, I tried to put myself in the place of the people I was covering. You know, it's so easy to walk in with just a notebook or your microphone. If you don't absorb what they're feeling, what they're thinking, you don't really get to the real core of, of the community, of the neighborhood, of the city. As a man of color, I was able to see, because they opened up to me, I was able to see and feel what people in the white communities are feeling. And I was able to verbalize that in my reports. And I was just doing what came naturally. And people made a big deal out of that, to my benefit. And they were saying, oh, that's incredible that he saw that. And I thought, if you don't do that, you're ignoring one of the first rules of reporting. Listen to what people are saying to you. Just don't go back to the next question you've written in your notebook. Listen to what they're saying to you, because if you're listening to them, then you can come back with a follow-up question that will make sense. And it also, it will indicate to them that you really are listening, that you don't have preconception. You do care about what they're saying. That meant an awful lot to those people who might not have wanted me in their homes at all. That's that's really instructive. I think what's happened uh, for me, and uh, it's as I evolved into a reporter over those uh, years, into the 70s and beyond, at various times to interview people who were uh, part of the desegregation uh, uh, 
movement period on both sides. And a few years ago, during one of the anniversaries, I went to Everett and interviewed folks who moved there from South Boston. Um, and they were students at the time in South Boston High School. And the people I encountered in Everett were people who felt that their life had fallen apart. Now, they didn't blame it on desegregation. But the people I interviewed there, a man and a woman, brother and sister, were extraordinarily poor, working of very insecure jobs, so on and so forth. I found it really interesting to ask them about what they were thinking at the time. I mean, they were very uh, direct, expressive in saying, well, at the time, you know, um, I, I didn't like black people, I don't necessarily like black people now, is what they were saying. They were brutally honest. Um, and it was important for me to understand why. Uh, and, and, a, and a lot of it had to do with their own economic place in life. They felt that they were, uh, that the, some of the Black people were in a worse position than they were in. They felt better as a result of, uh, that, of that situation. Uh, but it was instructive. Uh, again, the past is always instructive <laughs> because memory so often is, is uh, conflicted by history. Um, in history, of course, conflicted by memory. Um, and his, their memory of the time was they saw themselves in many ways as the victim. History, of course, sees it quite differently. And I can understand that sentiment because they basically felt that their way of life was being disrupted. I don't sympathize with that, but I, could, I see where they were coming from. They felt their way of life was being disrupted. But at the same time, they got a sense of exhilaration. It's what uh, Michael Patrick McDonald describes in, in All Souls, um, the chanting, the here we go, south, the here we go, the sense of unity as a community. Uh, all of a sudden, the, uh, they're out fighting each other. Uh, they're fighting a common enemy. And in this case, it happened to be Black people uh, coming into the neighborhood uh, on yellow school buses. Uh, and so it's always important to go back whenever we can to revisit the, if, if you will, the scene of the crime, uh, so to speak, uh, and to see what people were thinking and how they were thinking and, um, uh, and, and, and basically to construct from that, um, if you will, another history, uh, perhaps one that is, uh, which is of course what happened with Common Ground. <laughs> um, common Ground, the history was not far removed from the moment it was happening. Now we, 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 have, the, we have hindsight uh, we, but we also have flawed memories. Um, and, and so we have to um, rely on um, a, a bits and pieces in order to put together something fuller, more complete, um, and, um, and accurate. We're talking about history now, those who don't know history, et cetera, et cetera. One of the devices I used, and I'm sure a member of reporters, reporters did the same thing, is to engage uh, some of the protesters, who, people who didn't want black people coming into their community to remind them of what it was like for the Irish immigrants who came to this country and how Irish immigrants were treated, Irish not wanted here. And you just toss that into the hopper of conversation and they pull back a little bit and you can see them shaking their heads and they, they, they would tilt from their feelings about uh, court-ordered court school desegregation and go back to 
really painful memories they had of their families' efforts to assimilate in this country. And you could see their whole mood and philosophy change in the space of four or five minutes as they, as they parallel looked at what happened in their history and brought it forward to what it was like in the present of 1974, 1975. They would smile a little bit, realizing they had come 180 degrees in 10 or 15 minutes of conversation. And they would say, of course, I'm not going to repeat what I said to you. And I said, no problem. I think that something I appreciate you both saying is the ways in which you attempted to really listen and understand the experiences of different people who were involved. And also that that in some ways was a very different approach um, than the mainstream approach might have been in that moment. I guess the question I have for you is we're approaching 50 years um, since the, the Morgan versus Hennigan decision. Um, and I'm curious as to what you think the legacies are of the mainstream narrative around desegregation and, and the embossing being so rooted in stories of violence. Like, how do you think that continues to manifest in our city? How do you think that that being the dominant narrative continues to sort of inform how people think about race and desegregation in, in the city today? When I watch today's news, I wonder how much we've learned because it seems like we're making the same mistakes. We have, we simply have new, new people at, uh, in the roles of community leaders, but they're doing the same thing. They're trying to mislead their uh, constituents in, to uh, polish their own political venue. So have we learned from history? I thought sure as heck after all that we went through that things would be better, but when you look at the TV, when you look at newspapers, uh, you look at the social media, for heaven's sake, uh, I wonder how much we have learned. If you go back to last summer and the demonstrations around George Floyd, I think at least part of the country has moved somewhat forward in understanding the, the notion of systemic racism and systemic issues, period, that underlie much of what uh, people are fighting to achieve. There is a sense that, um, that there are, for example, educational inequities that necessitated a solution or what someone conceived as a solution. In this sense, it was desegregation via busing in the 1970s. Right now, it's assumed that you have police violence that necessitates reform. And you also have a housing crisis that necessitates answers but what you also have accompanying those things, the reality is you have people who feel threatened by whatever advancement a person of color might make, an immigrant might make, a woman might make, LGBTQ people might make. And that backlash is fierce. And I think what we're learning is just how fierce that backlash is. We saw one manifestation of that, I think, with the, with the anti-desegregation of riots uh, and demonstrations uh, in Boston in 74, 75, and beyond. So in that sense, we're in some ways, we're suspended uh, in, uh, in the moment of 1974, 75. But instead of marching on the streets of Boston and throwing rocks at Black folks, we're marching on the Capitol and attacking the symbols of democracy. Uh, all, all our manifestations of illiberalism, 
and all are extraordinarily dangerous. The difference is that you have broad exculpation of, of the folks who engaged uh, in that. Well, while in 74, 75, there was a sense that, you know, a progress that, that extended beyond those years. Now we have a sense of possible retrogression. And that is frightening. If, if you look at the video, for example, or film from Selma, and you see uh, people, uh, cops attacking Black folks crossing Edmund Pettus Bridge, folks accepted that that was really problematic. Yeah. That was that um, when you saw folks being attacked in South Boston, uh, m- m- the country, for the most part, accepted that was problematic. You have now a situation where at least half the country thinks that what happened on January 6th, what they see are patriots. And that's an extraordinary interpretation of reality. Uh, it's the worst type of verisimilitude. Um, and, but I think that that's sadly where we are uh, as a nation. And thus the lessons of common ground is we may have less of it uh, than we had in, uh, in 1974-75. That's uh, uh, so well said, but as you say, it is frightening. Uh, uh, how many steps forward have we taken in the last 50 years? Well, we, we can see it. We can see it. Um, and all we can hope, I guess, is that people listening to us, people watching us, people watching people like us will, will have some hope that, and it may be idealistic. I don't know. That's just part of my persona. I always think that uh, tomorrow will be better. Uh, I sure hope to God that uh, I'm proven right somewhere down the road. You led the way, man, and um, I'm I'm a reporter uh, as a result of uh, what you and others have uh, have done uh, in terms of uh, laying the ground uh, uh, here in Boston um, for those of us who came later. It's appreciated, and you. Uh, you know, and hopefully you you'll have the same impact on others who will be watching and listening to you. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Nima. Really, really a pleasure to get to hear uh, your thoughts and just your conversation with one another. I feel like there's so much to learn um, from both of you. And uh, I feel really humbled and honored to even like bear witness to this conversation. Thank you for listening to Common Ground in Perspective. This conversation was moderated by Nima Avashia with panelists Gary Armstrong and Philip Martin. The short play is written by Kirsten Greenwich, directed by Melia Bensusen, and is performed by Kadaj Bennett, Shanae Birch, L. Borders, and Maurice Emmanuel Parent. The sound design and music was created by Owen Meadows, with sound engineering by Matthew Frigi. This podcast was line-produced by Carla Mirabal-Rodriguez and Rosalind Bevan, and dramaturged by Charles Hoagland. To hear more audio plays and podcasts, and to learn more about future productions at the theater, visit HuntingtonTheater.org. The Huntington encourages you to support your local theater. To support The Huntington, please go to our website. And thank you for listening.